Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We are picking up where we have left off in this series that Pastor Barrett's been uh, taking us through, preaching through the Ten Commandments, and we are at the Eighth Commandment. Um, I, I was preparing for the Eighth Commandment all week because I was certain that um, Pastor Barrett had asked me to preach on the Eighth Commandment, and then yesterday I was looking at uh, some resources online. I came across one of the early printings of Luther's catechism. Martin Luther, of course, was coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church uh, compartmentalizes the Ten Commandments differently than the Protestants. We're right, they're wrong. <coughs> um, you can laugh, it's true. Um, and so I was looking at the Eighth Commandment, which was really the Ninth Commandment in the Roman Catholic Church, and I thought, oh no, am I supposed to be preaching on bearing false witness? And I thought I was going to mess the whole thing up. So thankfully, I am assured we are looking at the Eighth Commandment, and we're looking at Exodus 20, verse 15. You'll find that on page 61 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. And, and though it is only four words, I know that you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me as we look at God's Word here together. Exodus 20, 15, and there we read these words. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Well, at the beginning of this week, I came home one day and Anna said to me, you know, I thought that our landlord came and took the hammock out of the front yard, but clearly someone stole it because I called our landlord and she said she had not done that. And so all week I thought about why someone would steal a hammock out of somebody's front yard. Um, and then at the end of the week, as I was working through the sermon and I was thinking about motivations to violate the Eighth Commandment, we've all violated the Eighth Commandment many, many, many times, but one of the big motivations is laziness. And I thought, well, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> What's more attractive <laughs> to a lazy person than thinking about laying in a hammock? <laughs> and so we no longer have a hammock in our front yard, but I thought it was providential that that happened the week that we are looking at this commandment and um, what that says is that there is a frequency in this world in which we as fallen men and women violate this very clear command not to take what is not ours. Now, this command is so much deeper. It is so much deeper than just petty theft or large theft or extortion or what you might think of when we tend to categorize theft um, as we work our way through the Reformed catechisms and confessions, especially the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism. We are going to see the depth to which this command goes. And as we do, there is going to be a level of discomfort. Um, this was one of those weeks where I thought, am I supposed to be feeling this way as I work through sermon preparation? A uh, lot of thoughts of how much I have broken this commandment in my life, the many little ways that we've done that. You know, it's very interesting. 1992, the Barna Group did a poll, and they asked professing evangelicals. That word apparently means nothing anymore, but it did in 1992, and they asked professing evangelicals how many of them thought they had broken the, the Eighth Commandment, and only one in ten said that they believed they had. Professing church-going evangelicals. So tonight, we are going to look at this commandment, and we're going to look at it considering what God requires 
um, of us, both what God forbids in this commandment and what God requires of us, and then uh, finally what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We're going to see three things then. We're going to see what is forbidden, what is required, and what God has done for us um, because of our violations of this in Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this at the outset. Um, The Eighth Commandment very clearly teaches the principle of personal property. There is such a thing as personal property in this world. Um, God owns everything. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Christians are people who first and foremost acknowledge that everything belongs to God. Anything that I have, anything that I own, anything that my parents have, anything that my friends possess, God owns it. There's nothing under heaven that God doesn't look down and say, mine. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Um, All the beasts of the field, the psalmist say, are his. There's nothing we can give to him. There's nothing we have in ourselves merited or taken possession of because of anything in us that God hasn't first given to us. From his own fullness, he has given to us every single thing that we possess. I remember hearing a sermon once where uh, Sinclair Ferguson was talking about the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, and he said, you know, maybe you're one of those scientific types, and uh, you're, you've done well for yourself in business or in the work world, and you think, you know, I don't need to pray for that. I work hard. I've actually met people who have said that to me, and Dr. Ferguson says, the problem is you can't even stand up on your legs and walk to the refrigerator and open the door without God giving you the life and the breath and the strength to do so. Everything is his. And yet, God has also created a world and he created Adam in this world and created image bearers to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion over this world and to be productive and to take possession of parts of this world, and God has uh, apportioned things to one individual that he doesn't give to another. And this commandment speaks directly to that. And this commandment speaks to the fact, as John Calvin will say, that injustice, all injustice, is an abomination to God, and therefore we should render to every man what belongs to him. So at ground zero of the eighth commandment is, I live in a world with other image bearers, And I am to live as one recognizing that all things belong to God, and yet I am also to live in a world in which I am recognizing that I have an ethical responsibility to other image bearers to ensure that what God has given them is protected and and is even promoted for the benefit of the culture and the world in which we live to the glory of God. Uh, Calvin will go on to say in the Institutes, he who does not carry out what he owes To others, according to the responsibility of his own calling, both withholds and appropriates what is another's. So any withholding of what we ought to be giving someone else is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Now this is where it's going to go very deep as we talk about what is forbidden in this commandment. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we're working through in question 110, answers that question about what is forbidden by saying God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes all scheming and swindling in order to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate. False advertising. 
means that on the surface may appear legitimate or flattery, Calvin will talk about, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Now, I, w- I want to just for a second tell you how pervasive um, uh, the, the violation of what is forbidden in this commandment is in our society, and that we know that. There's a famous painting, Phil Riken will give this illustration in his commentary on Exodus. There is a Norman Rockwell painting, very famous painting, and it's, it's unique because it's one of those paintings where Rockwell is, is moving in very closely to two individuals, um, an elderly, dignified woman and a butcher, and in between them is a scale with a chicken on it. And this woman is buying this chicken from this butcher. And in the painting, the butcher has a smile on his face, a little grimace. And the woman has a smug contentment on her face because he is pushing the scale down with his finger as he looks at her. And she is pushing it up. And they are looking at one another as if to say, I know what you're doing. And I'm okay with that, even though it's wrong. It's a fascinating painting. Riken will note that that butcher would no doubt have called the authorities if someone had stolen something out of his shop. That woman would never have said that she was a thief, but she was trying to gain unjustly. He was trying to gain unjustly. And there's a sense in which our culture has normalized those sorts of violations of this commandment. Unjust weights and measures. The small It's okay if I give this to you because you're a friend and you've come to my workplace and I like to help my friends out, but this is not my business and it's not mine to give you without you paying for it. And a thousand other ways that this commandment forbids any unjust weights or measures and that God is weighing every single interaction, every single monetary financial transaction that we ever make in this world. That's a frightening thought. That's a frightening thought. Every single commercial interaction, the God of heaven and earth is weighing that on the scales. Phil Riken will go on to say there's insurance fraud, the filing of false claims. There are deliberate cost overruns that make up the difference between the estimate and the final price. There's the theft of intellectual property. There's the violation of copyrights, including the unlawful duplication of music and videos. Very interesting. Barna had a a recent uh, poll where they went to professing Christians, young millennial Christians, and they asked whether they thought it was ethical or not to, um, to file share, to copy music, and to give it to their friends. And the bulk of the young people that they interviewed who professed to be Christians said they completely thought it was just and right to do that. And, and you see what, what this commandment is saying is that um, just dealings with regard to the possessions of others uh, reaches to every crevice of every interaction 
in every sphere of life, whether we are business owners, whether we are homeowners, whether we are home renters, whether we are children living in our parents' home, it doesn't matter what stage of life we're in, God says, you shall not steal. Um, There have been estimates that upwards to $150 billion a year is lost by corporations from employees practicing petty theft, not even extortion, not the Enrons, the employees taking things home that weren't those, cutting hours when they weren't really sick, um, not working for what they contractually agreed to work for. All of that is forbidden in this commandment. I remember it hit me as a young Christian how, how little I understood the depth of this commandment, that if I didn't work with all my might for my employer, that I was actually stealing from them. Um, if I'm not doing it to God's glory, to the best of my ability, in agreement with why they hired me, I'm actually stealing from them. And I thought, oh my, I am undone. Um, this command reaches so far and is so deep. Um, You know, Martin Luther (coughs) lived in that day with the peasants in uh, Germany and and had a heart for the peasants, but also saw a lot of the problems with the peasants and and in relationship to the nobility and to the clergy in the Roman Catholic Church. And he saw the theft among the clergy, and he often talked about how the clergy was robbing the peasants of what was rightfully theirs, much in the same way that Christ railed against the the leaders of Israel, the false shepherds, for for taking to themselves what should have been for the people, even the sacrifices and and those things that were set apart for worship for the people. And and Luther would note how the the clergy in the Roman Catholic Church were, were full of thieving corruption. And then he would note how the princes were often very corrupt in their dealings with the clergy and the church and with the people. And then he would talk about how the peasants would rob their pastors of good salaries. He would say things like you, you would give your, your animal, your donkey, your ox, more than you would give your pastor. You find this everywhere in Luther. And at one point, Luther says this. He concludes, he says, If all who are thieves, though they are unwilling to admit it, were hanged on the gallows, the world would be empty. I love that quote. If all who were thieves, who are unwilling to admit it, were hung on the gallows, the world would be empty, and there would be a shortage of both hangmen and gallows. <laughs> you see what Luther, he's calling, he's calling you, and he's calling me, to own the fact that we have not kept this commandment. Worst thing in the world for you to do is for you to sit there and think, I've not violated the Eighth Commandment. I've always sought to be just. Um, you know, if, if you think the world is not full of thieves, including us in some senses, then why do we all walk around with a pocket full of keys? If there's only a few thieves, why do we all walk around with a pocket full of keys? Um, I was told how safe Signal Mountain was. I could leave my doors open but not my hammock (laughs) in the front yard. (laughs) Um, You know, there is so much more that we could talk about 
uh, in regard to what the Eighth Commandment forbids. But notice that there's also a requirement. Um, it's not as though we should go around in life, and we've heard this a lot in this series, as if we should just be thinking, how do I not steal tomorrow? How do I not, not take what isn't mine from my neighbor? That's, that's not the heart of the commandment, right? The commandment is there in that second table of the law. And the Apostle Paul reads this in Galatians chapter 5 when he says uh, he cites several of the commandments in the second table of the law. And he, he cites this commandment and he says, and if there are any other, they're all fulfilled in this one word. Love fulfills the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so if I am to properly understand the Eighth Commandment, then I need to understand what responsibility I have, what duty I have toward my neighbor. I should want my neighbor to thrive. I should want my neighbor's possessions to be protected. I should want my neighbor's um, uh, prosperity in the world. I should want to carry out my dealings and my care for what God has given me or whatever stewardship he gives us so that others benefit and so that it matriculates to blessing and benefit for others. So that in whatever I do, a proper understanding of what this commandment requires requires that I look at my neighbor and I want my neighbor's good and I want for them what I want for myself. Now notice the Heidelberg Catechism says that very thing. In, in Heidelberg 111, uh, Olivianus and Ursinus say, I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good. What does this commandment require? I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good that I may treat others as I would like them to treat me and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. Now, here's a beautiful summary statement. First, they say, I do whatever's for my neighbor's good that I might treat others as I would like them to treat me. Now, I know if you walked into my house or my car on any given day, the areas of my house that are mine, you might think I really don't care about possessions that much. <laughs> there, there, is, there is a point where how we care about our own possessions reflects what we think about possessions. And there is a point where I cannot properly love my neighbor and care for their good if I'm not caring for what God has given me first and foremost. And so the principle, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, begins with how I would have others treat me and how I care for those things that God has given me. But then notice that the authors of the Heidelberg say, and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. Now, the Eighth Commandment, is in many respects built on the fourth commandment. Because the fourth commandment says, in six days you shall labor and do all your work. And it is a positive mandate that what God wants is his people to be productive, hardworking, faithful, and diligent in whatever calling to which they've called them. And then the scripture teases that out and says, by so doing... We enjoy the fruit of our labors. The writer to Ecclesiastes, if it's Solomon, says, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and enjoy of his labors. 
That that is, that is a portion that God gives us in this world to work diligently, to enjoy from the fruit of our labors, to be industrious, to use our gifts, to be a blessing to others, to pour ourselves out in service. And then, and then that I may share with those in need. Um, the, the authors of the Heidelberg are drawing off of Ephesians 4, 26, I believe, 28, where Paul is giving a series of applications from the gospel and to those who have been redeemed by Christ. And he says, in a very interesting statement, let him who stole steal no longer, but let him work with his hands what is good that he may have something to give to those in need. So he envisions an entire group of people who before they were in Christ um, stole and were lazy and were motivated by discontentment and greed and, and took things illegitimately and did everything they could to gain unjustly. And now he says that they're in Christ, let them work diligently that they may have something to give to those in need. Now note that he doesn't say, and this is very important, because your error may not be the error of laziness and discontentment resulting in you scheming a thousand different ways to lay up more than what God has given you and to do so unjustly. But your temptation may be to work or to overwork in order to just lay up for yourself. And that would be failing to fulfill the positive prescription of this commandment. There's something positive in this that I would have not just for the care of my family, yes, first and foremost, but that I would have for the care of the church and that I would have for the care of the poor and the needy, first in the household of faith and then to those in need in the community around me. Augustine would talk about moral proximity, caring for those in these moral proximities in which God has placed us, and that that's what the commandment, you shall not steal, requires even above and beyond unjust taking. It would include laying up, as the Heidelberg says, even greed, and a greedy desire to possess without being good stewards for the blessing of others. You know, there is, there is one other very weighty requirement to this commandment, and in a sense, it sort of overshadows all that we've talked about. In, in Malachi, I believe it's chapter 3, when the Lord is confronting Israel um, on their failure to give him their tithes and their offerings per his command, and the Lord says there, in, in what is a very unusual introduction um, to the Lord's rebuking of his people, he says, will a man rob God? That's a frightening thought. Will a man rob God? He says, yet you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and put me to the test and see if I do not open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing that you have no room to hold it. That there is one to whom we owe a portion of what he has given us and that if we do not give back to him joyfully and thankfully and uh, willingly and eagerly 
and bountifully that we very well may be violating this commandment and almost certainly are. Um, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Um, I told you I was convicted this week as I read this, not just for the times that I know I've taken things I shouldn't have taken sinfully and unjustly, but for all the times that I know I violated this commandment by omission, um, by my lack of diligent work, by my lack of care for those in need, for my uh, ability to sort of convince myself why I don't need to give more to the Lord than I've convinced myself I can give. Um, there's a proper uncomfortableness we should have when we should consider this commandment. If, if you're uncomfortable with the things I'm saying, that's good. It's not a bad thing. Um, but the question is, what do I do when I've recognized that I stand open before God, guilty of violating this commandment so many times and in so many ways in my life? I look to the one who the scriptures say was born under the law to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. I look to the one who scripture says was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. We look at the Lord Jesus, and here's the miraculous thing, and it is miraculous. Jesus Christ kept the eighth commandment perfectly for 30-some years. I was reading an article by D.A. Carson on economics and the eighth commandment and benefiting society, and toward the end of that essay, he said, what a, what a glorious and noble and yet unremittingly difficult <laughs> task. And yet Jesus did that perfectly. I want you to think about this tonight. As we think about our own failure and sin and guilt, I want us to think about this fact. Jesus never unjustly took anything from anyone. Jesus never gained by unjust weights or measures, ever. Jesus wouldn't disobey his father when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness to turn stones into bread. He never, he, he didn't submit to the people when they wanted to make him king. He didn't say, well, I'll just take that office to myself the easy way. He says, no, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to do the hard thing and I'm going to take all the wrath and I'm going to do it the hard way to establish my kingdom and to redeem my people. Jesus never um, allowed uh, people to tempt him to discontentment. You know, Jesus was homeless for at least a portion of his ministry. Uh, Jesus was supported by women who graciously and lovingly supported him. He never complained. You never get a sense that he's acting in desperation, trying to take for his own needs. There were, there were times, the Bible says on several occasions, that he was hungry. After 40 days in the wilderness, he was hungry. When he came with his disciples looking at the fig tree, he was hungry. And yet, he, he waited on his father. He waited for his father's provisions every moment of every second of every day of his life. That's, that's astonishing. 
you know, Jesus had two brothers come to him, and they were arguing about the inheritance. And that seemed like a, that seemed like a, a fairly, that seemed like a fairly um, uh, easy matter for Jesus to resolve. I'd, I'd like to think if one of you came up to, you know, Pastor <laughs> Brian or Pastor Chuck or myself, and you said, hey, I'm struggling, I'm having a debate with my sibling about uh, this inheritance, and what should I do? We would probably fall into the trap of telling you what we think you should do. And Jesus rebuked that man and said, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of things that he possesses. And Jesus wasn't just teaching that, he embodied that. He embodied that. There's a really beautiful um, picture of what Jesus does for us, even in keeping this commandment, that you might not have ever thought about. Um, in many of the expositions on this commandment, reform theologians will say, even parents laying up for their children and providing for their inheritance in caring for them to have um, and to make requisite plans for them is contained in this commandment. I think they're right. And Jonathan Edwards has this sermon on uh, Christ uh, departing peace that he gives his disciples. And he says in that sermon, he says it, it was a pe- peculiar benefit that Jesus could bestow his peace on his children. He was about to leave the world. He didn't have any silver. He had no gold. He, he was in a state of humiliation. He was poor. The foxes had holes. The birds of the air had nests. But the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He had no earthly estate to leave his disciples, who were, as it were, his family, but he had peace to give them. And what Edwards goes on to say is that Jesus gave his disciples everything. He gave them all of his spiritual gifts. Jesus held back nothing. He pours his blood out on the cross to take the wrath that we deserve for all of our offenses. My only hope on Judgment Day, and I'm going to say this because your only hope on Judgment Day, of not going to hell for every violation of this commandment is that Jesus took every one of our violations on himself by imputation. Every time we have unjustly taken anything or unjustly withheld anything to whom it is due, he took every one of those sins on himself and he gave everything. He poured out his very lifeblood. He gave his life. Far from taking He gave and gave and gave. The Bible says he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end and he gave himself for them. And then the Apostle Paul says when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Isn't that awesome? The ascended Jesus continued to give to his people, the spiritual gifts of love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, and then the gifts of ministers. Paul says in Ephesians 4.11 that he gave some to be prophets and apostles and evangelists and teachers, and he continues to give, and he gives his intercessions for us. He ever lives to make intercession. Everything that Jesus has, he gives, and then the Bible says that if God did not spare his own son, as we heard this morning, but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely also with him give us all things? He's the heir of everything, and he has secured for you and for me the everlasting inheritance. 
That's amazing. And we don't take it. We trust him for it. And he gives it freely by his grace. And then, and I want to say this finally, the Lord, as he works in our life and he forgives us for the many times we violated this commandment, and he forgives us for the many times we have not sought the well-being of the possessions and, and benefit of others, he forgives us and cleanses us, he justifies us, and then he begins to change us and make us want to become a giving and caring people. That was one of the most liberating things for me after I was um, first converted was I had lived such a self-centered life of taking that it, it was so astronomically different to want to give back to the Lord, to want to help people in need. Um, that's part of the work of Christ in shaping us and molding us into a people who love this commandment and who long to see our lives conform more and more to a desire to working it out in our interactions. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, this is very deep and very convicting, and Lord, we acknowledge that we all fall short of your glory in the ways that we have violated this commandment in our failure to be good stewards of the possessions that you've given us, to be content with what you've given us, to work diligently, to seek to be a, a benefit and blessing to others. And so, our Father, would you please fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who, though he knew no sin, was made sin for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would remind us that you have washed us and cleansed us. We pray that you would renew in us a desire to walk in paths of righteousness and to give ourselves to loving uh, this commandment. We pray these things in your name. Amen.